This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Is Technology Limiting Our Humanity? and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015 at the Barbican in London. The discussion was produced in partnership with Transport Systems Catapult. So, welcome uh, to this afternoon keynote uh, panel, Is Technology Limiting Our Humanity? My name's Claire Fox, I'm the Director of the Institute of Ideas. I actually was really keen to have this discussion, and uh, one of the reasons is that it seems to me that discussions about technology can get trapped. And so, I hope that this discussion will just open things up a bit. That's what I'm hoping. But... Whatever you think about technology, whether it's uh, you, you can't but notice that this is like a constant discussion and almost argument. But there's been all sorts of things in the build-up to this festival about uh, robots, artificial intelligence, about driverless cars, uh, whether they're going to kill us all, what happens if they get out of control, all of these kind of things. There's lots of discussions about the Internet of Things and smart cities and whether we're going to be liberated from the banal tasks by technology and that it will create a revolution in how we live. But I've had a bit of liberation and technology experience this weekend, which is that I haven't had time to look at my phone and to the point where I keep thinking I've lost it because I've, and in fact, now that I've got, I'm having a heart attack now thinking, is it in my bag? But anyway, um, but the point is I haven't had time to look at my phone and you realise this is a weird feeling. I'm always looking at my phone. I'm always tweeting, I'm always looking at my phone, I'm doing work on it and so on. So I haven't had, so people say this all the time, don't they? But there is this sort of sense in which, is technology helping us or does it actually end up that you use technology in a way that you can never not be at work and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the kind of territory. I'm also, you know, a woman. I've just come from the identity politics thing now, so I'm not doing a declaration Right, that I am a woman or anything. But as a woman, I have noticed over the years that technology has done a huge amount to liberate women. That was what I was going to say. If it wasn't for the microwave, I would be in trouble. And um, washing machines, things like that. In terms of domestic life, uh, this made an enormous amount of difference to actual liberation in many ways. So is it a tyranny? Is it liberating? Are we excited? Is there a revolution going on? And all of that sort of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I do think it's a very important social discussion rather than a technical discussion. And I'm delighted that we've got some experts who do know what they're talking about uh, on the panel. Um, but they are also aware of the fact that we want to have a kind of quite a, a relaxed, sort of interesting kind of discussion. They're not going to speak for that long. You kind of know the format now, I assume. And then, and then we're going to go out and get this uh, conversation going. So I'll introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. Firstly, we'll be hearing from Dr. Tom Chatfield, who is a very well-known writer and broadcaster uh, on this area. Actually, we, um, Tom doesn't know this, but we, we've always wanted to get you to speak, so we're delighted you're here. He's the author of uh, Live This Book and How to Thrive in a Digital Age. Obviously, absolutely bang on what we're discussing, um, and you can buy his books in the bookshop uh, uh, um, on the ground floor. So, welcome, Tom. Um, can we give him a warm welcome, please, to the panel? We've, we've then got uh, Juliette Morgan, who is uh, C&W Tech Global Lead and London Head of Property. 
at Tech City UK. <laughs> it's one of those titles that I know. Um, but she, uh, Juliet has worked at the interface between property and technology industries for the last 15 years. She's worked in New York and Tokyo, worked with Hackney Council to develop Tech City, uh, Tech City Showcase during the Olympic uh, Games. She was recommended uh, by a good friend of mine uh, who, who actually said, I know who you want if you want somebody who's interesting. And she said, Juliet. And then we had a chat on the phone and she was right. So I'm now going to... No, but I'm not setting you up. I just... I didn't... I'm just explaining. I'm just explaining the basis on which she's here. Uh, next to me is uh, Dr. Paul Zanelli. He's the Chief Technical Officer of the Transport Systems Catapult. Uh, Transport Systems Catapult have been uh, great champions of the festival. In fact, they are one of our, our, our festival champions. Um, and also, we've uh, done some work together over the last 18 months, uh, uh, two years since you uh, established. And at a number of panels, Paul has been uh, on the panel and is always, he and I argue a lot, but it, the point is, he's prepared to argue. He has vast experience in technology, uh, from uh, uh, startup in 3D images right through to um, uh, big uh, data speech analytics. He was a technology fellow at BAE, uh, Network Rails, head of research, and obviously he's at the Transport Systems Catapult. So can we give him, and I think I didn't do this, but and Juliet, a warm welcome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I have to confess, I'm a bit tired. <laughs> if I start talking about uh, intersectionality and everything, you will know I'm at the wrong debate. Right, anyway, um, uh, Dr Norman Lewis will be up then. He's a Director of Innovation at PwC, worldwide expert on future trends and user behaviours around uh, technology innovations and adoptions, co-author of Big Potatoes, the London Manifesto for Innovation. Uh, a number of the, uh, his colleagues have been speaking on panels. Um, actually, Norman was uh, the person who inspired this session, suggested that we uh, do something like this. So we're very glad that he did. And he's also a battle regular and uh, always uh, makes me think. So give him a warm welcome. Last but, and last but not least uh, is Andrew Orlowski, who's executive editor of Register, the UK's most popular uh, technology website. He's an associate producer on All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, that uh, fantastic Adam Curtis uh, documentary. And he's one of the best writers on technology around, in my opinion, uh, a must-read. So anyway, great. he's spoken before. Great to have him back. Give him a warm welcome. Okay, I know it's impossible, panel, to, you know, to fit everything into five to seven minutes, but just give us a sort of provocative opening so that we can think about it. So, let's start with you, Tom, please. Perfect. Thank you very much. A very great pleasure to be here. I'm glad I get to kick off because I can say absolutely anything without being terrified by the intellects of my fellow panellists. Um, and when I think about us and technology... I tend to think with automated and digital systems in particular that it is a kind of mirror into which we look and that asks us a very difficult question, which is to define ourselves and our humanity more precisely. And a lot of people are finding the image in the mirror you know, more and more alarming because it seems that our tools, our machines, are starting to do more and more things that we used to think of as uniquely human. They are sort of chomping into the margins of what was once our very, very special position. 
Just one recent example, you know, we know all about uh, self-driving cars and things, but I've been very struck by some research in America on emotional and facial recognition. You get a tool to analyze using some, you know, sort of fairly decent AI, the, the micro-expressions playing across people's faces. And you get a bunch of actors, and you get a bunch of people who are experiencing, if you like, real emotions, because you're making them feel little bits of pain. And on the one hand, you get a bunch of human volunteers, and you train them, and they try and spot, spot the real emotions. And after training, they get about a 55% success rate. They don't get much better than that. Whereas the latest version of the software now gets about an 85% success rate. And one of the most sort of enticing and alarming things about numbers like this is that if I were to do this again in 10 years' time with a bunch of human volunteers and train them up, they would still get about 55%. You know, you train people up, they hit a level, that's it. Whereas machines in 10 years' time would be orders of magnitude better at the task. And this kind of doubling and redoubling and redoubling has lots of interesting effects. So we all get very scared. We all sort of throw our hands in the air and we say, goodness me, are machines going to you know, do various sci-fi things? But that's actually, that's actually not what I'm most interested in. When we, I think, take the very good question for this debate, the, the thing I ask in response, you know, in terms of limiting our humanity is, well, we're building more and more complicated automated systems. We're surrounded by these. So what vision of humanity are we encoding into these systems? What assumptions about ourselves are we putting into our tools? To take a very simple example, uh, Claire was talking about the relief of being away from a mobile phone, the almost sort of palpable release of psychic tension that comes from not having to use a lot of willpower not to check Facebook. And I'm, I've become more and more conscious that as far as a lot of the programs I use on my beloved iPhone are concerned, I am little more than a single jabbing finger and a pair of eyeballs to be sold advertising to. The vision of me, this marvelous, complicated, emotional, embodied creature who smells things and tastes things, and it's kind of delightfully irrational in the way that humans are, so far as the software is concerned, I am eyeballs and a finger, jab, jab, jab. I am a series of numbers which translate into money. My time is their money. And this is actually quite a denuded view of who I am. This is actually quite a reductionist vision of my humanity. And I feel that one of the great flaws with a lot of the technology we use very casually at the moment is that it grossly undervalues our time and our attention these very precious things we have, are, in a sense, made into a currency which everyone is desperately scrabbling after. So let me ask another question. And that question is partly based by my uh, reading of lots and lots of stuff about Uber, which is a sort of saviour or bete noire. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of litmus test for what kind of techie you are. Is Uber you know, the devil or the ancient agent of God come down to save us all. And I read a very good piece, I felt, by the American writer Susan Crawford, who said, I began as a very big fan of Uber, of a service that disintermediates taxes, that lets me 
and my wealthy friends have drivers whenever we want in a kind of appy, convenient, direct way. And then she began to wonder, and to paraphrase her, she began to wonder, well, what vision of a city and a citizen is embodied in Uber? What assumptions has it made about this whole business of getting in a cab and being driven around? And of course, its vision of this, its assumptions are profoundly entrepreneurial and individualistic. The idea is that they connect you, the customer, with the person providing the service. And the person providing the service, they switch on Uber when they like, they switch it off when they like. They are solely responsible for maintaining their own cab, for maintaining their insurance. They may or may not have to have some kind of code of practice to do with local laws, but as far as Uber is concerned, the less regulation, the better, within limits. It's a profoundly individualistic vision of public carriage. As Obama said in a different context, you didn't build that. Roads, cities, infrastructure. There are many different accounts of what these things are, of the rights, responsibilities, the things we owe to each other in these spaces. And one of my great concerns is that once we encode a certain set of perhaps unexamined assumptions into an automated system, that system has both an astonishing momentum, that is, that's just then the laws of that system, and those assumptions, like the fact that a keyboard ought to say QWERTY at the top, because that's what stops 19th century levers getting stuck, therefore QWERTY, 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 until the heat death of the universe, that those assumptions have a momentum that is almost akin to law, and also that then, as always happens with tech, unforeseen and unforeseeable consequences will proliferate based on those assumptions. And we end up in a situation where only that which can be counted counts. And the things that aren't counted by the system might as well not exist. So this all sounds a little bit miserable and grim about tech. But for me, it is, I think, a very heartening impetus to simply demand that things are better than they currently are in all areas of tech. And to do this by asking this very useful question, what vision of a human being, of a citizen, of an embodied human consciousness is, you know, is going on in the system? What does it see me as? Does it just see me as an individual economic force where the less the friction, the better? Does it instead have a totally different vision to do with humanity as collective, to do with modes of practice, to do with relationships? And I think this is where I want to end, really. Does tech limit our humanity? Yes, absolutely, all the time. But this should lead us to the much better question, which is, well, what version and what vision and what values around what it means to be human, around what counts, individually and collectively, do we choose to embody in our tools? And if we don't manage to scrutinise and debate these things properly, then momentum may carry us into places that are very far from where we wish to be. Thank you very much, Tom. That was, uh, I think that was a, a really uh, excellent... A start and a kind of overview of some of the questions and, and, and pose us some new questions. It's really nice. So, Juliet. Well, um, how many... Into, into the microphone. Sorry, sorry. Can you... Uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Hi. Um, thank you for having me join you. How many of you can tell me what that is? Anyone? 
That's a baby swiping a magazine wanting it to be an iPad. Um, and that genuinely happens. As it, it happens because it's on YouTube. It must be true. Um, <laughs> and, and so where I wanted to start this conversation was really um, not only is technology affecting our humanity, it's actually affecting our physiology. So um, babies within 10 months are now swiping um, iPads and Steve Jobs, whether we knew it or not, has reprogrammed our children, um, literally the operating system for humanity. He's had a bit of a pop out without knowing. Um, but also we're losing our sense of smell. Um, we're so visually driven now that there's a really cool um, researcher in the West Coast of, uh, um, based in Seattle who has proven that um, we, we are genuinely losing our skills around navigation and our skills around um, smell. And also our language is changing. So we um, now speak in text speak. Uh, we don't write physically anymore. My four and a half year old is learning to write and I realized one of the reasons he's finding it profoundly difficult is because he sees me do this, not this. And even looking at my notes here, they're appalling and bear no relation to my writing um, as a primary school child. Um, and so it's quite clear that technology is eroding some of the skills we have and replacing it with heightened awareness in other areas of our physiology. And some of that calls into question our relationship with technology and, and just picking up on the driverless cars piece about Uber. Totally loving the fact that most of the reasons why there have been accidents with driverless cars have been because humans have driven into them to find out what they'll do. Which, if there is no other proof that we shouldn't be allowed behind a wheel, then there it is right there. So really what I wanted to focus on was the physiological changes around technology, um, but also the environmental changes. In, um, and I know I won't steal your thunder because we're going to talk about smart cities, but I work at the interface of property and technology, and I sit with developers every day. And the thing about building buildings is that they're supposed to be around for about 100 or so years, um, which really should call upon us as practitioners to try and leave something good. Um, Rem Coolhouse refers to it as space junk, um, he thinks that a lot of what we're leaving around is really not great at all. But what's happening is, for the first time ever, technology is coming into buildings in a way that buildings are no longer blind, deaf and dumb. They actually understand who's inside them, what's going on inside them in real time. And that has profound implications for us as workers and as citizens and as individuals because when the buildings know who's inside them and where we are and who we're talking to, when are we working? When are we not working? When are we talking to the wrong person? How do we switch that off? Um, and so the implications around personal security, cyber security, <coughs> what work is and isn't, um, start to be completely eroded. And we haven't really dealt with the ethical implications of what all of that means. So I, I also know that um, in offices that a lot of you will hopefully not have been um, consigned to open plan environments, but if you have, you'll know that a lot of people around you quite often come to work in an open plan environment and they put a set of headphones on. Does anyone just feel familiar? The reason they do that is because physiologically we feel hunted in office environments. And back to John Medina, he's actually installing um, in office environments every 50 feet um, either a piece of art or a staircase or a tree because we as animals want to be able to run upwards within the savannah when we feel hunted. So he's actually trying to deal with the fact that our cortisol levels are raised when we don't feel that we can run away. Your office is genuinely triggering a fight-or-flight mechanism, and you can raise that in your PDR with your personal managers when that next comes up. Um, <laughs> when I was thinking about this subject, I was thinking about technology is taking some things away, but it's also giving us a sense of humanity. And when you look at what's going on with things like change.org or the Arab Spring or... Um, 
the recent Shell protest. Um, five million people around the world got together with Greenpeace and, and have protested against Shell to the point where they're no longer um, mining in the Arctic. That's sort of extraordinary. And I was at the Wired conference this week. Um, there's a, now a Wired fellow who is using technology to, prog um, to track the progress of migrants across Europe. So all those journeys that we couldn't see, all of those people going through terrible experiences are now visible to us in ways that absolutely weren't 10 to 15 years ago. And technology has given us transparency and the ability to behave as a crowd and the, the ability to call out and say when things are wrong. So we ought to embrace that aspect and, and what it enables us to do. And even, uh, I think, two weeks ago, there was a, a meeting not very far from here called Tech Fugees. That was London's tech community trying to use app development to help... Um, distribute aid and humanitarian assistance to refugees as they're coming across Europe. So technology is giving us things as well. So I guess what that means for me is that ultimately what we'll get is new skills. When we have so much information overload, um, I know I have more emails than I can process and I probably haven't answered your emails if you sent me one. People will respond with the ability to turn off. They'll manage that flow of information. And so back to what our relationship with technology will mean that actually we free ourselves from it to have the new ideas, to um, collaborate with each other and have new thoughts, bring about new forms of empathy when the whole planet can talk to each other. We have way more transparency. It means we can think as a crowd. Um, and potentially that leads to some efficiencies around being able to use the shared economy, use cities better, see when things are available, um, and bring about that really nice human trait of sharing. So it's entirely possible that we could end up in a cleaner world or a less consumptive world. Um, and all of this takes me back to the 1970s where um, I think it was um, coined necessity is the mother of invention and technology will save us. And I genuinely hope that that's true. But what I really wanted to conclude with was the fact that this is a perennial problem and humans adapt, and we will to this too. Thank you very much. Uh, loads of great stuff there, uh, Juliet, to discuss. I, I, I'll come back to some of those things. That was really helpful. Thank you. Paul. Right, thank you. So um, what I love about these debates is you always get very, very different um, viewpoints from the panel. So I'll, I'm hopefully now going to give you another very different uh, viewpoint. So I'm an engineer, and I'm an engineer that looks at transport in urban environments, urban mobility, how we move people and goods around our cities. And what I see at the moment is our cities are just getting clogged up. They're dirty, not pleasant places to be. And a lot of this is to do with, with traffic. I was listening to a Radio 4 programme the other day about a school in Beijing. It was actually a UK public school that was building a school in Beijing. And they were building plastic domes with air purification so their special students didn't have to uh, um, go out in the, in the... So they could go out in the outside without killing themselves. You know, and in Sao Paulo, you know, they have traffic jams that go on for days. They're becoming renowned. Gridlock, just literally three, four days of gridlock. And I'm speaking to chief executives of cities in the UK, and what they're telling me is that the gap between what they need in terms of transport and energy and what they can deliver through you know, existing techniques, even if we could afford to do all those existing techniques and hadn't spent all the money, the gap is huge. Uh, it just doesn't add up anymore. So something new needs to happen. And I also think you don't need to be an expert in transport to look around and think, actually, we could do this in a much better way. You know, having people driving around in cars that they own when there's... I mean, I think it's average 1.5 people per car is the average sort of occupancy of a car. 
um, freight as well. You know, we all know that you know, a person delivering a package to our house when we're obviously out and then taking it away again so that we can just ask for it to be delivered again is pretty stupid. So there are solutions to all of these things. And I think technology does provide a solution. So we talk about big data, wireless communications, mobile devices, the Internet of Things or the Internet of Everything, intelligent systems. And these technologies could reduce the cost of um, mobility within our cities, dramatically reduce the carbon footprint through the use of renewable energies and integration with um, electric smart grid and renewables, Um, particularly if they're electric vehicles. Essentially, you've got a lot of electric batteries running around, which are great for storing energy. In in Germany, they produce more photovoltaic energy during the day and have to waste it um, because there's nowhere to store it. And also, it would create a huge amount of capacity. The current estimates are you could actually deliver the same amount of movement of people and goods within a city with 30% of the number of vehicles. And all of that, I think you could also improve the experience for people depending on how you define that experience. But at the moment, the experience on transport, as we know from all our surveys, is pretty, pretty poor. So, but to do this, we'd have to have a totally new way of, of delivering mobility within cities. We'd have to give up um, ownership of vehicles and move to what we call mobility as a service. So you would pay for a package, the same way you do for a mobile phone, for communication, you would pay for a package for mobility. But that's quite a big change for people who are used to to owning vehicles. Although we are seeing that actually the younger people, um, it used to be in my generation it was a car, that was your liberating, that was your point of freedom. Now actually it's when you get your mobile phone. And actually younger people aren't taking their tests and they're not interested in in owning a big lump of metal that's going to sit around for 95% of its time doing nothing, just taking up expensive space in our cities. So, So the question is, is this vision that I've just described of mobility of the future... Is that limiting our humanity? Are we being treated like infants, you know, with no possibility of transgression? And I think there is a real risk here. I mean, maybe it's just having all these arguments with uh, Claire that's affected me from my pure tech and engineering viewpoint on life. But I can see that, you know, if you just leave it to the pure engineers, then we'll have a very nice, efficient, safe, clean system that will be boring, it will be dull, it won't have any of the edges that I think are, are for me, what makes a city interesting. You know, we, we had, a, had a discussion with Juliet early on, you know, and we could end up, you know, what is these two worlds, these two visions? One is this sort of utopian view of the world where all of this mundane stuff is taken away from us and we can sort of walk around in green fields having great thoughts. Or the other one is actually, I don't know if anyone's seen the film Wally, when, um, you know, humans just become sort of almost farmed, you know, and we just consume, as we heard earlier on, consume advertising, consume things and don't actually have a... a, a uh, um, you know, this, this, this world of the future, this, this utopian world. So I do see a compromise. For me, the way we need to, to, do, to go about doing this is, is when we engineer systems, we can't just let the, the traditional engineers engineer them. You, know, you need the psychologists, the philosophers, the, the artists to be part of that design process. And actually, at the moment, if I talk to a lot of the people who are in charge of our big infrastructure engineering and I said that, they'd look at me like I was crazy. And I do say this to them a lot, so I know they look at me like I'm crazy. But, you know, things like, um, and hopefully the uh, chairman of Crossrail is not in here because he's on our board, but, you know, Crossrail doesn't have any toilets on the trains. Yeah, and that was an engineering decision. I know, as a parent with young families, who, however much you plan, the children, the first thing they're going to do is say, where are the toilets? Or with an ageing population. 
Yes, if it all ran absolutely smoothly, the 20 minutes it will take, you won't have a problem. It's not going to work like that. So it doesn't take account of people in the system. So I think we have to, we have to take account of people. And finally, um, I want to briefly say that um, in the opening for this, we talk about, there was talk about Elon Musk and the issues with um, AI being an existential threat to, to humanity. I think these are slightly different conversations. They're the conversations about using technology to create complex systems that are there to help us, and then the emergence of true deep AI, which I do believe will happen within our lifetime, and I do think is something that we do need to consider very carefully, because this AI is not going to be like the films of the 60s, this sort of nice robot that just says, oh, I just want to help humans. You know, it will be as um, sort of... Uh, have all the flaws and foibles that we associate with um, intelligence um, within ourselves. So I do think that is a debate that, that needs to happen as well. Thank you. Uh, great, Paul. That, that, that was really interesting. And uh, yes, you've, you've moved on. Good. That's good. <laughs> no, that was really good. And actually, I thought, um, uh, actually, between you and Juliet and, and some of the things Tom said, I can sort of see quite an interesting way that we can kind of explore the discussions. That's really great. Um, so, Norman, your thoughts, please. Yeah, well, now for something completely different. Um, I, I think the basic point I want to explore is that I think we're... The, the question is not for me, for me, is not is technology limiting our huma humanity, but um, that humanity is actually limiting our technology. Uh, and I'll try and explain what I mean by that. Because I think, I think we've, we've really got to try and get out of this kind of technologically fetishist... Uh, discussion that we always inevitably get into, which is that we somehow imbue the technology with independence, with human qualities. When this is all man-made, technology doesn't exist because technology created. Mankind has created this. Um, and, you know, technology is, is an object. It's not a subject. And it's a question of the choices that we make as humanity, as society, as a culture, that really determines how these things work. And the thing that's confusing in this discussion, I always find, is, is the difference between form and content. Because the form that this discussion takes is that we're looking at things like artificial intelligence, robotics, automation, the things we associate with the future, things that are kind of science fiction and all this. So we, we're kind of thinking it's a futurist agenda, uh, something you know, extraordinary being presented there. But the content, when you actually stand back and look at what is really being engineered, as was said by previous speakers, um, is that it's actually a very, uh, what I would call a, a kind of caricatured version of what uh, human agency really is all about. Artificial intelligence is a, an attempt to try, and it's artificial, I, I don't know if you get the, the clues in the word, it's artificial, it's not human intelligence. And I would argue, and against the, the previous speaker, that I don't think artificial intelligence can ever uh, displace human intelligence, and I'll try to explain why I think that's the case. I think we, we, what, what we have is we, we're actually having a very mundane discussion um, about what this technology can do because we have a very mundane view of what humanity is. Uh, I think Tom asked a very good question uh, about that right at the beginning. Um, you know, it's quite extraordinary to me that we are all sitting in this audience. I know we've been asked to switch our phones off, but we've all got smartphones. We all are carrying more computing power than the whole of NASA had when they put a man on the moon. And what are we doing with this technology? You know, we're, 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 we're exploring ourselves. We're, it's narcissistically kind of looking inwards rather than going where no man has gone before. And, and that kind of says to me something about the aspiration behind all of this. 
So that, that, so that is my first pro the first problem that I, I, I think is, is that we're not really trying to emulate human agency. I think what we're doing is we are um, emulating a caricatured version of what it means to be human. And what I mean by that is this. If you look at um, what we, we cons consistently confuse um, the high processing power that we have, we confuse data analytics uh, of computing techniques like collaborative filtering, um, even um, deep learning networks, etc. And somehow we equate this with the fantastic ability of human beings to be able to process information and through experience understand, uh, create meaning in things. In other words, create knowledge. And that's a very different thing. Knowledge is a very human thing. It is not a machine-based thing. It is something that requires the interjection of human subjectivity through experience to understand what is important, what's not important, what, 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 what is, is meaningful, what can be acted upon, what you can consciously act upon, and most importantly, what you can creatively do with that. And I think that that's the, the, this element of agency is very critical to, to what I'm arguing. I think the second point about this is that it's the culture that we're operating in, contemporary culture today, which is driven by a real risk aversion. What we're looking for in this technology is predictability. We're trying to reduce risk as much as possible. You know, algorithms, if you, if you, depending on what you put into them, they will churn out a certain result, if then. That's what algorithms do. They're quite ingenious, but my God, I think someone's already said this, they are incredibly boring. They're incredibly unimaginative because they're simply, if they've got the data, they will process the data. If they don't, they cannot. You know, we have, uh, and tied to that, I think, so that you've got this, this couplet of risk aversion and also about the ambition behind what we're trying to do with this technology. I mean, I really do think there's, a, there's an ambition deficit disorder in contemporary society. That what we're trying to do is we're trying to automate for example, when it comes to the driverless car, we're trying to automate cars. But what we should be doing, ladies and gentlemen, is thinking about systems beyond the car. Why are we even thinking about cars? Why are we trying to take the human being out of the car? Why aren't we trying to create new systems altogether that we could rethink about what transport might be or mobility might be in the future? We're trying to, what I see happening is that we are we're trying to automate the, con the, the, the limits of contemporary society. We're strapping mankind into this kind of safety-first, predictable, fixed and static universe. And I think this is, this is very dangerous from my point of view because what we're doing is we're fixing something that which in essence should not be and cannot be fixed, and that is um, creativity, knowledge, and it therefore means that we're cutting ourselves off from what this, the potential of this might have for the future, of, of where this might go in the future. If you look at something like big data, it's very interesting. Big data is becoming so big that what's happening is that whatever you do with big data, whatever question you're posing to big data, it is always going to bring out results. It's always going to create results that are, are statistically significant because there's so much data. And the problem here is that whilst I think there's extraordinary power in big data and what we could actually do and what this, this, the, the insight it could give us, when you've got sig significance everywhere, when everything's statistically significant, how do you determine what's important and what's not? You can only do that by human judgment. You can only do that by, 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 by testing uh, one proposition against another. 
And that brings me to, to, to a big point. Ask yourself a question. Why is it that Apple, in their music system, are now employing people as DJs in their music system as opposed to just using algorithms that, that, that try and predict what kind of music you're going to like? Because there's no algorithm, ladies and gentlemen, that can actually deal with human taste, that can actually create human taste, that can actually understand human taste. Um, it's very interesting. You can get correlations between what kinds of music um, somebody likes because somebody else has listened to something else. But it will never be able to spot originality. It will never be able to spot a style of music if it's not heard it before. There's no data that can allow it to do that. Only human beings can do it. You know that when you listen to new music, very quickly you can tell whether you like this or not or whether it strikes a note or not. A computer is just not able to do that. Um, finally. Finally. I think um, what, what, what I'm really concerned about in terms of this technology and what it's doing uh, in the way that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about um, is that we, we're in danger of, of reducing human ingenuity down to the kind of level of algorithms, of trying to say that, that, um, that we're reducing human beings to the status of conditioned automatons, um, of predict, being predictable, of being boring, of having no imaginative capacities. And I'd like to end on just a quote. Uh, I think if you've ever read Arthur Kustler on creativity, which I really recommend you do, it's a huge book. Uh, it's really worth the effort. He makes a fantastic point about habit and creativity, and he says the following. He says, Habits reduce man to the status of a conditioned automaton. The creative act, by connecting previously unrelated dimensions of experience, enables him to attain a higher level of mental evolution. It's an act of liberation, the defeat of habit by originality. I think that what we're in danger of today with this technology discussion is that we are defeating originality by elevating habit because we're becoming uh, basically captive of algorithms that we ourselves have actually made. Because we have a reduced vision of what humanity can do and human agency, it doesn't mean that that's the future of everything. I think if we can defeat habit by pushing for originality, then I think the technology can actually liberate humankind, not limit us. Okay, thank you, thank you very much, Norman. Something of a, a challenge to some of the consensus um, uh, there from Norman um, that we'll come back to. But finally, Andrew. Thank you, Claire. Um, just before I start my prepared notes, uh, I should note that for years at the Register we ran a series, occasional series, tagged The Rise of the Machines. And this was inspired by the invention of the Cyberloo, which seemed to trap people inside them. They worked so well. Uh, and I think for years, nobody was trapped inside a cyber toilet without us recording it faithfully. If you know nothing else or remember no anything else about the register, I hope that, that's what's remembered. Um, I'd like to start with um, one of the most useful and interesting characters I've ever come across, uh, to me as a writer dealing with this subject, is a man called William Playfair, who was a character influential at the end of the uh, 18th century. This was a time of, of turmoil, technological disruption, class upheaval, and fear of revolution. And Playfair spotted a gap in public life. He compiled databases, enormous databases, including a nine-volume inventory of assets in Scotland. These were really inventory of things. He was doing big data 200 years before uh, computers. But Playfair was an embezzler and a blackmailer with some unscrupulous 
habits. He used to kidnap farmers until they told him how many sheep they had. Yeah. He's remembered as the father of data visualisation. He was the first to use the pie chart, the line chart and the bar chart, which we all use today. Now, I, know, I owe my knowledge of Playfair to a history of data viz that's coming out next year by Ted Byfield on Bloomsbury. Byfield writes that often in times of historical uncertainty, there's what he calls a white flight, an effort to create imaginary spaces into which observers can flee from anxieties about their cultural and historical position. I'd suggest we're in the same kind of period of upheaval now. Because I find William Playfair a very modern character. He'd fit right in at a Shoreditch tech meetup. That's a feature of technology brainstorm, or maybe a cabinet office thought shower. He called his graphics the geometry of finance, which is actually a very TED talk-like title. I can see that as a bestseller. Now, times of great change create an opportunity for playfairs. There's various ways of putting it. You can say we have a fluid freelance uh, economy of thinkfluencers, or that there's lots of blaggers and chancers. But I want to pursue this theme of flight and what it can tell us. Now, much of the discourse around humans and technology is utopian fantasies, and some of it is dystopian. Both are examples of what I call, for, for, for want of a better phrase, displacement anxiety. This is anxiety about things which aren't an immediate problem, or the most pressing problem, but a way of avoiding them. These require fantasies, perhaps even conspiracy theories. What do they tell us? What are we running away from? I'll suggest two things are apparent, one specific, uh, and then one dealing with the, the panel. An enormous source of anxiety is the state of the digital economy or the internet economy, which doesn't seem to fulfil the promise of 20 years ago. But here it seems to me like we're between eras. The current era looks very tired. There are no new ideas. It's cannibalising itself. The first era of internet development was characterised by open technologies, very rapid proliferation. The second was closed platforms. The functionality was private, developed and owned by giant platforms, plantations. These set the terms of trade and relationships. The platform sought to undermine every legal right that an individual could assert, ownership of your own stuff, privacy, reputation, because they found them inconvenient. Power has really been seized for the individual. This is satirised in Dave Egger's book, The Circle, where any private space or any assertion of property rights over digital stuff is considered a violation against the collective. Privacy is theft. Sharing is caring. The great achievement of Silicon Valley, perhaps, to me, is, is to get people to campaign against their own interests to celebrate when their rights are seized or nullified. This is done under the banner of internet freedom. Don't break the internet. That ensures it stays the way they want it to stay. Today's digital economy is also riddled with fraud, and Playfair's biographer noted, a criminal disposition is highly advantageous. Now, I can see initiatives that kind of outline a third era of internet development, of beginning to return to the individual ownership, property-ish rights over stuff, an era where developments where the autonomy of the individual is, is respected more. Examples I'd include uh, are Europe's developing its own infrastructure in the wake of the Schrems versus Facebook case, you might know it as Safe Harbour. Development of open tools to assert property rights such as um, our own copyright hub. Many of the hub's projects are actually about sharing and public use of material, in many cases free use, but with power to the individual. But these are barely here yet and it isn't clear to us what the next era will look like. Now, um, the, the hardest part of my job really is as a writer when I meet politicians and policymakers to explain that the world is temporary, there's an enormous continual churn underneath, and nothing about today's internet or economy is set in stone. I want to uh, deal with robots and 
really the, the meat of the panel, as Claire described it to me. Now, it strikes me that the outline of our talk covers two different but related things. One is huge advances in robotics and AI. We're told that, that robots will soon be able to make complex ethical judgments and do creativity, and so replace middle-class jobs. I don't think anybody minds uh, robots replacing drudge work, as Claire mentioned in her introduction. The other is that the fears of choices made by planners and designers over our lives uh, make the world more boring, in essence. Now, my reading of the literature, and I try and keep up, and I know people who are, who are involved with this, doesn't bear out the first scenario. Robots taking middle-class jobs, because they're better at a judgment or creativity than humans are, seems to me largely a masturbatory fantasy for the chatterati. <laughs> As Darren Lanier points out, to make computers seem intelligent, we first have to make ourselves really dumb. Once we're done, we're super impressed by what a computer has just done. And I don't disagree with Paul's uh, comment. I think the dangers are more in big systems that are poorly designed, which I think some of the panellists here have put. But what I want to put to you is that the hollowing out of the professions as they surrender their own independent judgment is the problem, and it's something they've been doing for years. I'll give you an example. GPs. In France, in France you don't see a GP for less than an hour, while in the UK your visit to a GP is measured in seconds. GPs rarely look up from the... NHS version of Wikipedia, and without too much study, it's possible to learn what processes a GP does. In addition, I recently had to change mine, because far from being pleased that I'd cut down from 25 cigarettes to three a day, he began to warn me about the dangers of vaping. So moralising has replaced healthcare in that instance. <laughs> Let me give you another example of the professional classes hollowing themselves out. Editors at newspapers, there's at least two, maybe more in the UK who do this, look at what hashtags are trending. They then instruct that material is generated to feed that demand. The material is published in such a way to lure robots, Google News or Facebook algorithms. Behind the scenes, other robots place the ads that accompany the material. More robots then click the ads. Around half of the ads served are never seen. That's fraudulent. So that isn't a reader-writer relationship. And in professional politics, now seems to be run on behaviourist lines. To paraphrase one writer at the register... Um, the tendency remains to treat people as parametrically determined objects. The phrase hearts and minds admits that people feel and think, but implies that what matters is to ascertain which feelings and thoughts affect them most strongly. Modern politics consists of, to a large extent, of this kind of appeal. Some of the social sciences have followed down this rabbit hole. And because behaviourism and the cybernetics that informed Facebook are such close cousins, people are seen as a cog in the system. My point is this, slightly provocative. When the professional classes hollow themselves out, as MPs and GPs and some academics and political professionals have done, then they can't really blame automation. They've automated themselves. And perhaps that's why they're so ready to fantasise about machines. Thank you very much. That was excellent. I told you he's a good writer. That was really good. Right, um, uh, so um, I'm going to go out to the audience in a minute. I'm, just, I'm only going to go to you, Tom, because it was so long since we heard you. Is there anything you <laughs> want to just quickly respond on? Anything quick? And then, and then I'll make sure that I bring everyone else after. Yeah, I can't, can't resist the chance to hear my own voice. Um, I, was, I mean, I just want to pick up very briefly on this lovely sort of image of a GP hollowing herself out, which is my wife is a GP, is a rather vicious um, thing to conjure up. But I do, I do love this idea that a concept I sometimes sort of frame in my head as artificial idiocy, that we are very good at making ourselves stupid. And I think I just 
would draw a parallel between that and the thing I was interested in, in that you know, one of the questions is, well, how do we explain ourselves to machines? And what kind of contortions do we have to put ourselves through to win at the games that they offer us together with the glittering prizes? So editors and writers, they want to have the clicks and the eyeballs, fraudulent or not. And so they chase desperately after hashtags and trending terms, and they achieve the magnificent metamorphosis of making a creative human being into a rubbish version of an algorithm. And your great achievement in this space, the, 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 the pinnacle of your achievement in chasing after hashtags is to sound exactly the same as everybody else. And so I think there's a lot to be said around the, the ways in which we are only too capable of making ourselves look and act and behave very stupidly. Okay, algorithms are having a hard time up here, right? So I'm going to go out and see if anyone, anyone want to defend them. But anyway, anyone like to ask anything, say anything? Let's take a few uh, contributions and I'll come back to some of the other panel and see if they've got anything to respond and so on and so forth. So I've got, um, I've got uh, that person there and then that person there. Stop. Um, yeah, I want to come back on, Tom, actually what you were saying, this interesting question, you know, what kind of visions or assumptions are we building in uh, the new devices, new technologies, and actually bring that up you know, with, with, with what uh, Norman was saying, because I think what you were saying sounds a bit like you know, society gets what it deserves. You know, like People get the politicians that they deserve, societies, and also societies get the technologies they deserve. But where I see a, a quite stark contradiction between what Norman's saying, actually kind of agreeing on that point is that you know where would you start to tackle that challenge or to tackle the problem where Norman if I got it right was more saying that we have to you know to to more tackle the fundamental challenge you know which is you know what kind of ambitions do we have what is our vision as human beings on that planet earth and then technology is going to follow that whereas I if I got it right there you more you know tend to start tackling the technological problems, you know, and get better devices and, and other social media, which would have, you know, what kind of other algorithms to, to, to get grips of that. So I would like to hear your opinion on that. Okay, thanks. Uh, th this gentleman here. Um, Norman, you mentioned humanity limiting our technology, um, and I thought this raised an in interesting perspective of flaws in humanity. Um, so obviously technology is fantastic at removing the flaws that make us human. We're less forgetful, we can answer an argument just by looking up the answer on Google. And to briefly touch on biotech, I think we'll find that nowadays students arguably don't use drugs to party, but to study. It's definitely an increase. Um, but on the other hand, um, technology enhances our humanity. We've all experienced how an anonymity on the internet allows people to be violent, aggressive, brutal which actually becomes an increasingly prob increasing problem when the person running um, a banking desk in uh, Morgan Stanley, the only thing stopping him sending off credit card details to a Bitcoin-financed uh, trading system is the sort of cultural uh, milieu that we exist in. And once we ignore that, does society have any base? So my question actually to the panel would be, what parts of humanity do we want to keep and what do we want to lose? Okay, thanks. Yeah. Uh, hello. Um if you want to carry on this conversation at 5.30, I'll be speaking about fossil fuels. But the, the, my point is not related to that. It's related to the fact that, that is it not the case that the problem is that the global business system is essentially running everything now, that globalization is a political fact. And the reason why we get Corbyn and Trump is because essentially governments can't pass laws anymore and we're kicking this donkey and it can't do anything. 
And essentially, if we surrender the future of human progress to the global business system, we'll algorithmize ourselves towards extinction. Uh, isn't that the problem? Oh. Yes. Hi. Yes. Uh, just picking up on Tom's point about individualization, uh, if I've got his name right, uh, Yevgeny Morozov made some points about apps are increasingly prob taking problems and conceptualizing them as individual choices rather than perhaps wider sort of systemic problems or social or governance problems. So the question to the panel is, do you see that things like apps and some of the approaches around data is atomizing, individualizing problems? Okay, thanks. So, um, uh, Juliet, anything you want to pick up on? I actually want to come back on something Tom said. About I want to do that as well. It's all right. Is that right? Yeah, that's I'll, fine. I'll, um, and that is the, the kind of dumbing down. And I would argue that we actually are quite dumb in that a large proportion of what we're spending our time on the internet doing is looking at cats. Um, and, and so that we have this incredible capacity for thought and then we switch ourselves off to do really mindless things. Um, and our response to um, robotics, actually, MIT have been working on this robot and they had to put a face on it, and they had to put um, gestures, and they had to program this robot to, to respond with facial gestures so that humans could cope with working with robots. And it's quite interesting that, that in the olden days there was that quote kind of, it's a puppet, and now it's like, well, it's a robot. You don't actually have to have an emotional relationship with it because it doesn't have one, but we feel the need to have one. So um, that was just some comments on whether we were dumb or not. Um, about hu technology, what do we want to keep and what do we want to lose... Um, I was just thinking about the dark web as you were talking about that and, and how the dark web really um, exists to protect certain degrees of privacy from systemization and um, governments being able to see everything. Now, all manner of appalling things happen in the dark web, um, but it does draw a really grey line around what do we want to protect and what are we willing to lose. And the, the idea that one individual trader can share credit card details um, well, the dark web is full of you know, hundreds of thousands of them, so I would argue that the dark web is more capable of causing damage than that individual trader who, frankly, um, most financial trade is now done by AI anyway. I can show you an office full of ex-bankers um, because I work in there, and they're coming out of the banking industry, coming into the property industry because it's unregulated and got loads of money um, and doesn't have a load of technology around it. So um, that's a bit of a ramble that goes um, only partially towards answering some of the points that came up. No, that's fine. Thanks. Uh, uh, um, Paul, anything you want to pick up? Um, yeah, so I'm going to go back to a couple of bits from the previous two speakers and try to address some of, of what was said there. Really in terms of this... Um, what we're building into the systems we design. And I think Norman sort of said that at the moment the, um, the focus on the driverless car is all about just taking the driver out of the car. Well, I think the popular press and the government is very interested in driverless cars because they're cool, but actually what we're actually doing, what a lot of the people are actually interested in this are doing, is looking at what does a future vision of mobility look like, and we're starting that by looking at people because people are that system. And that's really about understanding what are people willing to trade in terms of this, um, for this system, for this mobility. You know, it comes back to this argument about data. I'm almost going to refuse to have another debate on data because we've got to move on from this debate on data. Um, you know, we need to move on. And actually, one of the things where AI can come into play here, and what is a, a solution to, I think, the data problem, is that actually what we need are intelligent systems acting on our behalf, managing our data, rather than coming back every time and asking us what we want to do with this little bit of data. And nobody here reads the terms and conditions of their iPhone when they get to it. 57 pages. You know, um, 
the, the cookies symbol that you get up and you go click, click, get out of the way, which is EU regulation, thousands of hours of discussion of EU gave us that, and it hasn't made us any safer or better. So I do think AI, and in, or actually it's not AI, intelligent algorithms, because I also think we're confusing a discussion here on AI. Okay, so I, distinct, I, I separated the two things from complex systems and intelligent algorithms, which are just um, processing data um, to create outcomes, and what I call true AI. I think um, Norman said, you know, we can't have AI. I just don't agree with that at all. Unless you attribute um, humans, some speciality to humans, either based on, on religion, probably, or spirituality, then we're just processing machines. And actually, it's when we don't understand how something works is when we either say it's magic, it's intelligent, or in some way it's sort of godlike or spiritual. And I do see that we will get true AI coming, and I don't see any of the restrictions or any reason why, why we can't. Um, so there's a bit of a rant. Yeah, no, that's good. Uh, Norman? Um, I disagree. Excellent. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, that we can't get better and we can't get better machine learning and we can't... Uh, but I think to equate that with human consciousness is a step too far. I think that is diminishing human beings. That's my point. I, I think that the quest to actually do that is it only becomes achievable because we have a, a kind of diminished view of what we understand human beings to be. And I think it's the wrong question to ask, what, what do we want to keep and what do we want to get rid of? I want to keep the hum, human beings. I want to, what I want to get us back to is where we have belief in progress and human ingenuity and human problem-solving capacity. I think we've lost that as a culture. I think we don't trust people. We see people, I mean, if you look at the environmentalists, you know, we are a scourge on the earth. You know, we are destroying the planet. You know, we, we, we are the mistake that should be eradicated rather than anything else. It's a complete inversion of reality. And the point about uh, the, 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 the technologies that we create, all these technologies are human-made technologies. And the incredible thing about the technologies is that they do change us. That's the wonderful thing. You know, when we invent something, we then, the world is different after we've invented that. And we find new and unexpected uses of that technology. That's the wonderful thing. If you go into the history of technological innovation, what technologies were first envisaged as being and what they subsequently became in the hands of people are quite different things. Yeah, I'll give you a great example. An example I know from my own experience is just look at texting that we all do. You know, we all are, are kind of constantly... You know, Claire's not able to do it because she switched her phone off. But, you know, where, where did that come from? It didn't come from the telcos. It didn't come from the people that manufactured mobile phones. In fact, the telcos, when they created the mobile industry, created the, that as a back channel for their engineers. They never saw it as a service that would be used by people that could be commercialised. Um, I know this because I worked for them. You know who did it? It was the kids. The kids found a way of, of initially uh, taking that and turning it into a system to be able to send themselves messages to each other without any cost. That's where it came from. And why did the kids do that? Because the, their, their experience of uh, growing up in, in a society that was becoming increasingly concerned with risk meant that they were constantly in the presence of adults and they looked to technology, particularly cyberspace, as a means of being able to escape the gaze of their parents and be able to communicate with themselves peer-to-peer -peer without being in the presence of, 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 of adults. And there you have this fantastic, ingenious 
um, solution that they find to something, which then subsequently becomes a channel of communication that we all can't live without today. That's the wonderful thing. That's what I'm talking about, about the unexpected things that we do as human beings. That is the greatest thing. Mm -hmm. Never mind what... what uh, the computers are brilliant, but we created them. OK, thanks. Um, Tom, very quickly, um, I'm going out to the audience again now. Um, yeah, oh, there we go. Right, um, um, yes, anyway, the, the, that gentleman there. Um, Tom first, yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to, uh, I felt the need to jump in with a little bit more optimism to build on, on what Norman was saying, because uh, I wanted to pick up the importance of interdisciplinary design. And that, for me, is one sort of response to that very good first question we had about, you know, how do we get more than some kind of fairly lowest common denominator, miserable idea of what we deserve? And I think it's completely, uh, you know, kind of banal and commonplace to say technology is great for collaboration. But, oh my God, it's great for collaboration. And I, we talked about texting, and it just made me think, you know, 70 years ago, most of the world was illiterate. Human history is mostly darkness with a few people writing things. Now, not only is most of the world's population literate, people through phones and mobile devices are active participants in written and recorded culture. That's a really, really big deal, even if 99% of it is cats. And I think getting better at properly interdisciplinary collaborations, getting voices from lots of different places to talk together about what it means to be human, to be build things that have a slightly more exalted view of humanity than buy, shop, cat, click. This is, this is tremendously exciting, and we should not stop being excited about it, no matter how het up we are about all the dark side. Okay, thank you very much. So uh, that gentleman there, and then that, uh, that lady there, and then that lady there. Yeah. Okay. So actually building on the point of collaboration... Uh, stand up, okay. shout. About the, well, not really building on the point of collaboration, but it, it builds on that. I want to thank the organisers that when I look at these signs, I'm not seeing um, some tag to make me engage with this event on social media. And it's That's really a mistake. Rare. That's a mistake. <laughs> I do I hope mean, it's not a it's mistake. It's there somewhere. It's there somewhere. No, no, I'm really glad it's not. Yeah. But perhaps it's... It, perhaps I'm joking, yes. Yeah. Perhaps the conversation is happening and that people aren't just glad it's not there. They're doing it anyway because we've become normalised to it. So we don't even have to be told to do it anymore. So it's kind of like become our normal standard. But either way, I want to... Thank you guys for not telling me I'm inadequate, for not engaging with my computer in this event. So. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I will say is, uh, we have got a hashtag, needless to say. We play the game, like everyone else. Hashtag Battle of Ideas. Right, um, yeah, no, but the, but the reason you said that is because what drives me, man, is, yeah, we've got a hashtag, we've got it on the banners, actually, if you look, but is when I go to things, it, it's almost like compulsory that you do it. So what we, what we haven't done, if you haven't every session you've been in, somebody hasn't been going, don't forget to tweet, don't forget to tweet. Because then it's seen that the success of an event is if you're trending mm. or if people are tweeting about it. And I'm like looking out and there's no one on their phones in sessions. I'm not, I know that in some conferences or events, this would be considered to be, oh, bloody hell. Do you know what I mean? Come on, everyone, come on. Obviously, I look out and I think, oh, they're listening, that's good. And if everyone's looking at their phone, even if they're tweeting, Claire Fox is wonderful, even if they were, I, 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 you know, you'd, you'd sort of think, look up, stop tweeting. You know what I mean? So if you are tweeting, I'm not objecting, I'm a mad tweeter myself, but I just think that's the point that you're making, is that where it... Be, it be, yeah. Yes. 
Um, so I wanted to bring it back to something quite practical, um, the lack of toilets on Crossrail, um, because I see this as being a Twitter storm of the future, and I was wondering if it was too late to fix that issue. And then linking it in with Norman's comment about an ambition deficit disorder, if we should be using technology to manage things like bodily functions and the amount of hours that we sleep and time, you know, because I know that when I leave this session, I'm going to be in a long queue for the loo. So is there something, should we be looking at things like that? Uh, just thank you very much for a fantastic panel so far. But in defense of cats, I think we have to recognize that it's something called social grooming, that that's how we form relationships with people we don't know. If we pass enough cats to each other, we form a bond. That's what Zenaib Tukfekci identified, and it's totally true. So cats are good. Uh, but I have a question for Andrew. Uh, you wrote a lot about Google washing and about the uh, effect of obscure results of search engines that do censorship sometimes on purpose, sometimes less so, which we are not aware of. And that's a question for you. What do you think we can do with making the invisible visible and making us a lot more aware, in a way, how all these algorithms actually are censoring what's happening, either on purpose or not? So Google washing was a wake-up for me, and I started studying it with a lot of details, but it's gone worse since then. Okay, thank you. So I, I, I'll, I'll take the gentleman, then I'll actually come to, to Andrew and Tom as well. Yeah. So after Eva's defence of cats, I'd like to defend algorithms because we've had a <laughs> bit of criticism of them. Before I ask a question, just a, bit, a, a couple of historical uh, examples. In 2004, there was a very famous book published about uh, computers are going to change everything, but don't worry, they're not going to be able to do something because it's too difficult. For example, truck driving is far too hard. You know, To be able to drive a truck, you've got to be able to take in so much information so quickly and you need fine control. And it looked in 2004 as of a right because in DARPA's Grand Challenge Drive that uh, year, uh, all the cars broke down well before getting started. And the one who was declared the winner had only got a 20th of the way through the course. So it did look like there was no way these all were going to win. But over the course of just one year, uh, people applied more uh, algorithm improvements, and um, and I'm sure you know the story. And the next year that it was run, in 2005, the five uh, of the self-driving vehicles got all the way through 150 miles in the Mojave Desert. And then, of course, we've seen huge steps forward with uh, uh, trucks on the German motorways, self-driving trucks, uh, safer than uh, normal drivers. And then there's the example of Watson, and it's well known that IBM's Watson took on this uh, quiz show and had a lot of uh, difficult uh, cryptic, effectively solving the timed cryptic crossword. And the engineers in IBM were very horrified that their management said they were going to do this because they were all thought it was going to be too hard and too difficult. But over the course of a few years, they came up with much better algorithms. So my question for the panel is, seeing that other things which have been held out in the past as being impossible and have then been done by algorithms, what do you see as the kind of clear things which uh, no algorithm could ever do? And Norm was talking about creativity, you know, they, uh, computers are never going to be able to jump to this insightful conclusion, whereas we do have already uh, computers who are creating music, for example, the software com composer, the software engineer and mu musician David Cope creates music that other musicologists can't distinguish, they don't know whether it's an original Vivaldi or a made-up modern Vivaldi is just as inspiring or uh, if you're a classical music lover that is. So what do you pick as the points that uh, algorithms will never be able to do? Or is it instead that you think that they will be able to do it but not anything like the timescales that have been uh, floated? Okay, um, so first of all Andrew and then Tom. Um, yeah, let's just take a couple of the, the things that have been raised. Um, yeah, speaking to Mike. Oh, yes. A couple of things that have been raised was what... Um, 
governments can do, and then there's the Google washing question of, of stuff disappearing. That goes back to the, I mean, almost nothing. I just can't see why a search engine is a vast, private, closed, black box. Um, when you turned on the internet 20 years ago, you'd get an open protocol, uh, an open source protocol. Everyone could implement, they implemented it in different ways, but they all work together. Same with Facebook. Facebook has just made closed what was already open, but not working very well. Um, so I think the, the answer to a lot of the questions is, a, is we don't have functioning markets. Um, again, it's the, back to, to, to what's set in stone. Um, the decisions like the shape of the internet with these kind of great hulking plantations who take away the market, future markets, and give you Gmail back. Seems like an appalling deal to me. Um, the things governments can do, very small things, to legislate for far more um, dynamic markets so much more money comes in. I don't think it's a problem of buyers or sellers, um, but currently now we have a very iniquitous, very kind of um, broken system. If it's an economy, it looks like Somalia. Um, and, and governments can fix that. That's to uh, David's question on what, what do I expect um, AI to do next. I'm sorry if it sounds callous, but I don't care. We need to fix things so that talented photographers, writers, journalists in 20 years' time have a rich choice of dynamic choice of places to work. Unless we fix things right in front of us, that's not going to be, uh, that's not going to be happening. Oh, great. Sorry, Tom. So when it comes to algorithms, I think you know, the whole word algorithm has a bit of a kind of spooky, woo, evil factor. Um, I felt that um, sort of Paul in passing was paraphrasing Daniel Dennett, who's written quite a lot about <coughs> magic matter. And he makes, which is a, something that's a very hard point to argue with. If you do not believe that our brains are full of mystical matter that has properties that cannot be explained by anything else in the world of physics, then you are led to the conclusion that essentially we and our consciousnesses are just emergent properties of the stuff that is out there. And there is no hypothetical reason why sufficiently complicated computation could not produce all sorts of other kinds of consciousness. Indeed, as far as we know in evolutionary terms, the story of consciousness such as it is, is one of constant sort of leap up from single cell to complex cell to fish, to fish that likes to go for a walk on a beach, to big rock coming down out the sky, to mammal getting a chance, and so on. You know, there have been throughout the billions of years that we know about constant sort of steps where effectively matter has become smarter for very strange reasons. But you ask the question, you know, so what am I going, where am I going to state my flag? Humans do this Everybody else can't. And I, I sort of, I, I want to refuse that question. It's a question that has left egg on the faces of lots of very smart people over the last 10, 20 years. Um, I think any way you choose to make a stand immediately sort of makes you very, very vulnerable and gets you into trouble and leads you to neglect the much more interesting question in a way which relates to what Andrew was talking about. What is it that humans are like will want to do, ought to do, will wish to keep on doing, hopefully that will, they will do in coexistence with machines that don't just want to enslave them or treat them with contempt or have them all doing computer-says-no type jobs in software support forever. I think we need to look more closely at ourselves because, frankly, our record at predicting technology is so appalling, is so awful, is so dismal that on the basis of any evidence you care to cite, care to cite we should just completely ignore the prediction game and instead given to the description game and then and then start to ask these questions about you know the rich things that people want to do deserve to do like to do 
Um, and yeah, okay, I'm going to finish there. Okay, thanks. Right, um, anyone else? Um, I'm just. I'll take a few now. Come back to you three. I wanted to pick up on what was said further down my line about music. That I'm not very impressed with a software program that can reproduce something that sounds exactly like Vivaldi, because Vivaldi did not, died about a couple hundred years ago. Um, what humans do is create new forms of music. When we have a software program that can devise a new form of music that is better than something a human can do, then I'll be impressed. And by that, I don't... The other thing we tend to do is we tend to take a machine and a human and compare them and say, look, oh, look, the machine's cleverer than the human. But we're a social species. The sum total of human intelligence and human capability comes out of the sum total of what humans do, not what an individual human can do. When machines can collaborate and produce things um, of the sort of complexity and beauty that humans have been developing over thousands of years, then I'll be impressed. Until now, until then, I'm not. Okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, Yeah, sorry, there you are. Algorithms have been getting a bit of a hard time. Uh, So as a developer, software developer, I spend a lot of time taking fuzzy rules and making them concrete. Um, Sometimes that raises a number of kind of ethical issues about how we treat things. If I told a computer database, for example, flag people from a particular ethnic minority as an explicit rule, you'd be quite shocked, but we see it happening on a daily basis in the police force. As technology progresses, do you think that actually technology is going to force us to make these questions explicit, or do you think we're almost going to use something like real AI as a get out for not having to deal with these questions properly because it's just what the algorithm says. Hi, I just wanted to say, um, I'm sure a lot of people here have seen that uh, video on the internet of the woman who was uh, racially abusing some Muslims on the bus. And uh, I thought it was a good example uh, of technology where it's worked and where it hasn't. I just get the feeling that with technology, there's less human interaction between us. A lot of us, when you look around on the tube or you're on the bus... You're kind of plugged in. Everyone's plugged in, headphones. You're looking at your iPad or whatever. And I think that someone would have intervened maybe 20 years ago on that bus. However, a good example of where technology has helped there is that uh, that woman was charged today because it went viral. And it was on Facebook and it was on the BBC News website, etc. So I just thought that was a good example of uh, technology where it's good and where it's bad. But my question to the panel, uh, maybe you want to leave this until the end, is... Uh, which invention has benefited humanity the most? Is it the internet, the wheel, or sliced bread? <laughs> Definitely sliced bread. Um, uh, the, on the woman on the bus, by the way, I, I just wanted to uh, uh, slightly challenge... Uh, it's all all right because she's been arrested today after it went viral. I mean, what's interesting for me, this is a little bit about um, how our ideas get, can get shaped, is that's been used to, uh, to suggest politically, that there's now a massive rise in uh, attacks on Muslims. It's actually one woman that's been viewed by lots of people, right? So you end up with this sort of, like, political panic about that on the one hand. And secondly, it's gone viral. I mean, whatever she did, she was racist, right? She's, got, she's now a worldwide hate figure, right? And she's been... Ch- I mean, the whole thing is, like, and in, so, in some ways, once people start re-clicking, resending, and all the rest of it, as you know from things like Twitch hunts, I don't necessarily know that that's necessarily a good thing. Oh, everyone's seen that film. We all know that she's an absolute racist cow. Great. Get her. Get the police down. Oh, my God. Do you know what I mean? So I'm just saying, in some ways, it was a discreet thing that happened on a bus. Now it's become an 
thing because of technology as well. So that was just my view on the counter to the necessarily being good. But anyway, uh, that the person up there, and then then I'll come to uh, you three. Uh, Nico McDonald. I just wanted to respond to the point about music made originally by David Wood, and I think responded to well by the participant who talked about creating new forms of music. Uh, and I think David, I may caricature him, might respond that computers could create new forms of music, um, to which my reply would be that they wouldn't know they'd done that because it's humans and only humans who can judge what is good music because if you're creating something for humans, it's for humans to judge. Uh, and even knowing what is good music in an existing form is challenging. And Norman's talked about the challenge of companies like Apple trying to recommend music to us and resorting to humans to judge what we would like. Uh, so I think it's the question of judgment which is key and actually knowing what you've achieved, which seems to be a uniquely human thing. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, Norman, anything quick, uh, very quick, if you could just come back. Well, yeah, yeah, just, well, I think I was going to cover the, the point that's just been made. But, I, yeah, I, I, having said what I said earlier, I would certainly not be the person on this panel that would say that it's impossible, that we will ever have um, deeper artificial intelligence or whatever. Because, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, you, I think the, the, that's the wonderful thing about this. It's, it is inelastic and it's, it's not determinist. Uh, it's, it, is, it, is, it is an open-ended proposition. But so, so rather than saying what, what, um, what I think is going to happen, I think that the, the challenge that uh, we face in terms of making machines more intelligent is the following. It's a, it's a very simple proposition. Now, can we make uh, computers and machines to endow them with the, the sort of everyday knowledge uh, that humans acquire from the age of, from, from childhood onwards, that is just innate in what we do. Because, you know, you talk about Watson, it's quite interesting that the, 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 the guy who created Watson, David Ferrucci, his point about uh, Watson was that if you really wanted to test the intelligence of a computer, you got to test it about how creative it is. And, you know, as you all know, and you should have known from this last week, Ada Lovelace, who's the kind of founding mother of computing, you know, she made the point in 1843, which I think is quite perceptive, that, um, that computers, as smart as they are, impressive as they are, they're incapable of doing anything original. Um, you know, that's the basic pr computing problem. And so that, you know, that is still going to be with us. Uh, but, but the fact that we've got uh, the increased processing power and all of that, you know, um, I think we, there's still a lot more that can be done. I'm not saying it shouldn't be possible. Um, I'm going to pick up on a few bits. So I'm going to go back to the ambition for toilets question. I'm not even sure she's still here. I think she's gone to the... Oh, hello. Um, so, um, what you made me think of was, was a couple of people have mentioned Elon Musk, and um, there's a load of stuff going on at the moment around um, trying to go to Mars and using... Um, Antimatter to increase jet propulsion in space. The only reason I know this is I just went to a conference. Um, and um, someone at this conference just commented that that's great. All that's going to happen is that really rich people are going to go and fuck up another planet. And that's sort of interesting because if you applied that same, sorry for the expression, um, but if you, if you applied that same level of um, concentration of really smart people to the problems of this planet, then I'd be really interested in where we got to. Um, so I'm not sure if that solves your ambition for toilets, but it's just that I'd quite like us to spend less time thinking about 3D printing stuff on Mars and more time about changing what's going on on this planet. Back to the what will algorithms do and not do. 
I'm not sure that algorithms and computers are going to be able to produce food. I'm not sure that they're going to be diggers or farmers. And actually, um, I was in the Milan Expo last week and um, was with a friend of mine who is a caterer in New York. And she she feeds a lot of people in a, in a year. And she said, the future of food, we'd just been to see the supermarket of the future. And you could pick your meal and you could spray on the nutrients you wanted it to have. And then you could spray on its packaging. And she said um, something really interesting. She said, the future of food is that poor people will, will have their food manufactured and rich people will have their food that's sort of artisanal and been touched by humans. And I think, um, that, and this is really where I want to conclude, um, is that we as humans respond to things that people have made that have been touched by soul. That, that, um, and so her point was that um, there's a difference between nutrition and nourishment. And when things get made by AI, we will vote as individuals to support other humans who make things. So I hope that um, my ending on a bright note is that we will vote with our consumer feet and try and support other humans and the beauty of what they make with their hands and their hearts and their heads. And that was really nice, but you're not finished yet because we're coming back to you in a minute. But anyway, yeah. um, Paul, um, Paul, Paul okay. couple more from the audience and then final remarks from everyone. Okay, pick up a few ones. So um, toilets on Crossrail is something I talk a lot about, um, I think, in a, in a recent programme on um, future-proofing by Tamanda Harkness, we called from Uber to Luba, was uh, quoted. Um, <laughs> but it is actually important. It is actually because in the transport, most of these decisions are actually... Um, there's male mechanical engineers, and we do need this cross-section um, of people making these decisions for us, because if not, we do end up with some, some very nice mechanical big engineering projects, not things that, that fit with humans. Um, search engines. Um, yeah, this actually is interesting. It comes actually a bit to the regulation issue, because it's right, you know, how can we... It's such an important thing for society now, the search engine. How can it be in the hands of, of Google um, and Google's privacy um, you know, and, and secrecy? Um, and actually this links to other things from mobility, Uber, you know, there's a lot of um, regulation and things that, so what is the role of government and policy in terms of some of these things? It's a very important role that, that they do need to, to get involved in, but not fiddle in the detail, stay up at the top. And actually at the moment, one of the issues we have there, and it goes back to the discussion around the racial abuse on, a, on, a, on, a, um, on, on the bus, you know, we are so, this new technology is driving a lot of the people who influence where are, what we can do um, based on populist um, items, not on um, necessarily the things that are important. So driverless cars, as I said before, actually, the driverless car is a bit of a red herring here. What we need to look at is what is the future of mobility? What do people need? What is it going to look like as a system? And then at some point, the driverless part of it might make that a bit cheaper to do and a bit safer, but it's a very small part of it. And I've got one, um, um, one more, which is um, the internet, which was the answer to the... Which one of oh, the yeah, bread? Yeah, internet. Right. Um, okay. Couple, couple more. Um, person. Right. There's person there, and then there's the person in orange. Um, I just have kind of um, a question about whether you're aware of any organisations or governments that are trying to use technology to solve some of those important problems that we face. Um, and also, if you could actually elaborate a little bit more about um, the role of technology and the impact on the job market. Okay. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Norman, at the beginning, put, uh, uh, put it very well, I thought, when he, when he said that um, perhaps the question is not whether technology is 
limiting our humanity, but whether humanity is limiting our technology. Um, it, it seems that the, the discussion about driverless cars is already a discussion about who's responsible if they have an accident. Um, and the ethical question of how far we should go with technology, it was sort of raised by the, the first three uh, speakers, I think, in, in terms of you know, how it's changing our physiology, for example. Um, and, and I just wonder how far actually uh, what's happening is, is that the ethical shackles that are being put on, even simple things which, which we might think we could go far beyond, like driverless cars, uh, are actually stopping us from achieving uh, a lot of our goals. And actually beyond that, I wonder whether or not um, uh, the sort of obsession perhaps with artificial intelligence is in some way taking away uh, trying to take away the moral responsibility that human beings have to consider those questions and put, that, put it onto technology itself and machines to make those decisions for us. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I thought there was one more, but I, I don't know if I've made it up. Oh, it's the, yes, it's that hand there. Um, I just wanted to talk about, I guess, creativity and technology in general, uh, because I believe there was mentioned by some of the panellists that technology can limit creativity. But I don't think I can agree with that because, I mean, children from early age are creative. People are inherently creative. And I don't think technology or any invention can really limit that. I mean, even when people are not that good at creativity, they still try. You go to DeviantArt, you see horrible pictures that look like they've been drawn by five-year-olds, but people still try and they use technology to their advantage. Um, there was uh, a comment about the electronical music. Um, if anyone is familiar, in Japan uh, there was uh, this computer program released called Vocaloids, which is basically you can create electronic music and it has, um, it has voice, voices you can use to actually write your own lyrics and have the voices sing them. And a lot of people were worrying that this kind of music will replace real singers and it's, it's the end. But it never happened because that kind of electronical music with computer voices has found its own niche. And I think like every, every invention will have their own fan base, but I don't think it will ever replace anything man-made. Um, and uh, lastly, someone mentioned about the bus incident and how, how 20 or so years ago someone might have intervened. But I've seen a picture of um, like a demot demotivator, which is a picture from 1960s and a picture from 2015. 2015, everyone looking at their cell phones in a, in a bus or, or a tram. Uh, 1960s, everyone is reading a paper. Uh, I think people are just inherently, majority of us are inherently consumers and are not great thinkers or geniuses that will revolutionize the world. We like to consume because it's easy. And I just think that um, I don't really think technology will bring ruin to humanity. I guess that's optimistic of me. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I, I'm going to take the speakers in reverse order. The, the, the only uh, thing that I wanted to contribute to it was just, I mean, the, the, the usual story about, you know, people saying, well... Amazon now think I like books on... I mean, you know, keep sending me details of books on a particular playwright because I ordered some books on the playwright and they kind of get it wrong and all that kind of, like, lack of prediction. But what what most annoys me is when I um, are involved in politics and policy circles where you can see that people involved at the highest level of policy start to talk about how they can understand humanity based on things from technology... And it's like as though you can. It's like as though they're talking about the public citizens and saying, "Well, we'll understand better if um, what they think by looking at what they tweet or what they Facebook or you know." And it's and it's like and algorithms can show us things about people and we can understand humanity more. And I think that that 
that does make me nervous because it also uh, 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 treats uh, humanity as though it's kind of like a sort of uh, peculiar tribe uh, that, uh, that, 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 that nobody, you know, that you can kind of study in that way. But the other thing is, it's a very fixed view of us, and that's the thing that makes me laugh about Amazon and the, and the things. It assumes it knows what I like, but it never imagines I can change my mind and like something else, and it doesn't know how to persuade me to go better. So what I'd say about the cats is, you can do the cats, carry on with the cats. But I'd also like to be in a situation, I mean, but we're not in a situation where any, you know, the algorithms don't know that that's daft, right? They don't know that it's daft that you're looking at cats. And they don't know that it's brilliant that you're listening to classical music, if you see what I mean. It doesn't make those judgments. So, and it, it can never make the cat person uh, into the, the lover of Vivaldi or classical music uh, because it doesn't know that one is better than the other. There's nothing wrong with your cats, but you should listen to a bit of classical music while you're looking at them. Um, anyway, right, in reverse order, uh, we're going to have Andrew. Thanks. There's a question, are we uh, ethically shackling technologists? Um, when I see Facebook and Google and Amazon, I'm not looking at companies that, that, that are ethically shackled. Uh, one of their complaints is that, that humans have the temerity to even pass laws that affect them. Some of them fantasise about having their own. Um, jurisdictions beyond any any law at all. Um, there was a terrific article. One of, one of the questions reminded me of this about 2004, when it was written by a security advisor to the Clinton administration, and it was just a week, month or so after Gmail had launched. And he pointed out what Google had to do um, to justify itself legally, that it wasn't actually reading your email uh, to, to inject advertisements next to it. It had to do some kind of slippery semantic evasiveness. Um, in the subsequent 12, 12 years, companies got very, very good, so copying isn't copying. Um, what, they're watching you, but they're not watching you. They're not really reading. They're not really doing lots of things which, uh, which are quite clear, I think, ethically. Um, and this leads to the state where, well, who carries the can for anything if they're not actually uh, reading, copying, or watching, or taking responsibility? Nobody's in prison for the 2008 Wall Street crash. So how on earth are we going to get um, Google or Facebook in prison? Um, I, I always kind of avoid the question, is X, company X evil? Um, one thing I omitted from their talk, because I couldn't get it into seven minutes, was that they're just responding to the incentives that were lined up. The laws were written in the first year, and they, they've got very rich off them through loopholes in the second. Um, we can fix that if we, if we want to fix that. Um, another of the questions was... Are we getting, Final thought. Oh, right. Are, are we getting lazy? I think we are. We, we can have much better alternatives uh, if our policymakers, who Claire mentioned, just don't treat these companies as in, in slack-jawed admiration. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Um, uh, and so, Norman? Sorry um, to... Yeah, I, I, I don't want to deal with any specific questions. I just want to make the broader point that I think the, the conversation has really highlighted to me, which is that um, I really think that we, we have to make the case for human agency uh, in all of this because, as I said in my introduction, yeah, we, are, we always have a kind of fetishized conversation when we start talking about technology as if it has a momentum of its own outside of human control, and it doesn't. It's, it is very much under our control. And, you know, there's a fundamental difference between the brilliance of computers and, you know, I, I, I gave algorithms a hard time, but algorithms are actually ingenious, and they are human creations. But, you know, that's very different to human agency. Human agency is not about if-then, it's an open-ended proposition. It's, 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 we're not fated to act out any preordained script. 
you know, what I find so uh, depressing about the conversations I ever have about technology is how everybody is so quick to try and use it as a justification for somehow reducing human freedom and human thought and human agency. And I think it's the opposite. I think that we need to tilt the conversation and have it the other way around. That actually, if we liberate human agency, then the technology that we are doing today, well, with the potential we have in our pockets, could be doing a hell of a lot more than what we're doing at the moment. In fact, what's really holding us back is by 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 having this kind of diminished view of the of the human potential. We're actually diminishing the potential of the technology itself because we're closing down things before we've even explored. So, I, in contrast to to, to 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 what was said, you know, I say let's go to Mars. Let's 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 that should be a quest because in the process of doing that, we will uncover so much more knowledge about things that will find solutions for things that are happening here on Earth. And that's really what it's all about at the end of the day. It's about human problem solving. Um, and the computers are an aid to that. They are not something that's going to take over or diminish that. Okay, thank you very much, Norman. Uh, Paul. Okay, so for me, the, it feels sometimes that with technology, we're, in, we're having a refer, the in-out referendum on technology. Um, and as we know, actually, things are a little bit more complicated than that. And, and you know, we've heard a lot about, you know, Technology. I think the last question was around the fact that actually technology and humans can interoperate and they can feed off each other. You know, it doesn't have to be that you can't have technology or if not, there's no space for the photographers or, or what have you. You know, we had that with digital photography. It will kill photography. No, it won't. It can work in, in harmony. But in my everyday life, I do find that this battle between, you know, and it tends to be the sort of the technology and engineers on one side who are just all very excited about doing anything with technology and then the people on this side who are very sort of against and actually we need those people to be in the same room together, having the same dialogue. Or, you know, if we end up, you know, the crossrail on toilet, the toilets on crossrail is a, is, might be a side issue. But imagine, you know, as I believe, the AI in 30 years' time, if it's lacking that, its equivalent of toilets in terms of the humanity, the discussion we have around how it develops, that's quite a scary thought for me. Okay, thank you very much, Paul. Um, Juliet? Um, just quickly, really. Um, I think I don't want to be a commodity to technology. Um, so I don't want um, technology working out who I am, what I like, when to point things at me, um, and, and thinking about where this is going to play out. Um, I want us to be able to um, work with technology for the moments when we're switched off and when we're switched on. My um, best human experiences happen when my phone is switched off, um, and so I would like the ability to have an incognito button on my life um, so that I can reclaim those high bandwidth human experiences that happen when I'm not participating with technology. So I was just, I keep coming back in my mind to a lovely quotation from the um, Nobel laureate for behavioral economics, Daniel Kahneman, who describes a universal human tendency when he says, most people, when faced with a difficult question, often answer an easier one without noticing the substitution. And I think, I think this is quite a profound point. We've heard a lot here today about, in a sense, the irreducible sovereignty of our subjective experience. We are the measure. Man is the measure. Woman is the measure. What's going on for us? This is ultimately where we count success or failure in human thriving, in doing more than just getting by. And... So, for me, we must ask, well, how good are our questions? 
in a world full of data and answers, how rich and how probing are the questions we ask of each other and of the companies and people who build the systems and the tools we are using that mediate more and more of what we do, of the governments that we hope regulate them and hold them to account, of each other. And I think, you know, there's opportunity and challenge as ever, but that what it needs for me is an unprecedented kind of collaborative effort to bring together really compelling questions or we risk ending up sort of narcissists clicking on like, answering only questions that it isn't worth asking. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Can we thank the panel, please? Um, 